Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to another edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. He's Leighton Kling. Coming up on today's show, it's earnings season, but we actually don't start with as much of an earnings story. Press release from Albertsons kind of gives their latest initiatives. That's what we'll start with. We'll go to, of course, the earnings call we mentioned on last week's show with GNC. And we'll also talk about Sherwin-Williams, one of our favorite retailers, as they posted an earnings beat on Tuesday. A reminder, you can like us, rate us, however you access us, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast listening service. Also, you can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Retail Podcasting. You know, I think a lot of people might have thought that we were starting the show with Amazon after their earnings call on Thursday after the market closed. That's not the case. We're about Amazon out in terms of talking about them. Now, one thing I will mention, Amazon sales growing 16% in the retail sector year over year for the quarter, but their margins slimmer than ever. And what's funny is I saw some analyst comments afterwards saying, well, it's short-term pain for long-term gain, all of these shipping costs for the one-day shipping, that type of thing. It's great because, you know, if any other retailer said our margins are shrinking because we're trying to initiate these shipping mechanisms, the analysts would be saying the exact opposite. We don't see a path to profitability, but for Amazon, they give them a free pass. Either way, Amazon's down just a little bit in after hours trading. We're recording this on Thursday night, but we begin our show with Albertsons. And honestly, Albertsons releases a first quarter update that was downright pleasant. This is big news from the grocery sector because Albertsons, even though they have now six straight quarters of same-store sales gains, they've been slim gains and they certainly haven't been up to pace with inflation. We've been fairly critical of them in the past for letting many of its banners grow stale, including perhaps most of all Safeway. But this latest update, it's not really an earnings report since they're not public, despite numerous attempts at an IPO shows that perhaps the company, Leighton, may be in a more stable position than we previously thought. Albertsons still has a fairly large presence in the United States, and they're ultra-competitive, especially in a number of regions, one being where I live now on the West Coast. They have a ton of different chains. They own a lot of different large, high-traffic corners. And you really have to look at this company, even though it's in a competitive landscape and there are a lot of issues with margins overall in this particular industry. They have been around for quite some time. They know how to do business. But with that, we'll dive a little bit into the numbers here and we'll see that most metrics are trending positive for the company and their debt has been paid down somewhat with the assistance of some real estate initiatives. Here in the recent past, we've actually talked about some sale leaseback deals where they'll sell the building outright and then have a lease payment. And this frees up a little bit of liquidity for the company for their initiatives, some of which we'll get into here with this story. For first-time listeners or those who may not be that familiar with the chain, Albertsons Companies includes banners such as Safeway, Jewel Osco, Pavilions, of course, which I actually live by a couple, Randall's, and United Stores, Acne, and Savon, and many others, actually, that are a little bit smaller. They also hold, by the way, the meal kit service Plated. We talked about that acquisition and how... That may not be panning out too well for the company in terms of looking at those financial metrics. But if you look at the numbers in the company, Trent, first and foremost, the company was profitable in the first quarter, $49 million in net profit. They actually lost $17.7 million in the same quarter 
last year. And I think a lot of this could be having to do with the accounting and how they have freed up some liquidity and how they have had some pretty good initiatives being rolled out so far in this calendar year. But the profitability was mostly as a result of being more efficient with surrounding revenue generation. And this is also some of the real estate dealings, of course, that I had talked about just now, but we'll discuss that here in a second. Their same-store sales trend really increased in line approximately with inflation, coming in at around 1.5% above last year. The company was clear to note that this was their sixth straight quarter of same-store sales increases, so nothing like the 50 or so straight quarters we see at Dollar Tree, but still really solid for this company. However, the numbers have been getting better on a sequential basis, so you're looking at sequential growth, you're wondering if they can keep on track and beat these numbers next year. As a comparison, in the quarter prior to this, the fourth quarter of 2018, their same store sales were up just 1%. And last year's first quarter, they were up just 0.2%. So when we're talking sequential growth, we mean it. As a result, this increase was a bit more substantial than the others we've seen recently, which is good because others have lagged because of food inflation. And you see that Though for those that are curious, food inflation has ranged between 1.2% and 2.1% on a monthly basis since last year's first quarter. Of particular note for Albertsons, their private label brand penetration actually reached 25.3% in the quarter. It was 24% this time last year. So pushing those private label brands. And if you think back, if you think back to their closest competitor in the strictly grocery industry, you're looking at Kroger, who is also looking at private label brand penetration. And you see that they've been transparent, Albertsons has, about wanting to build their own portfolio of private label brands as a main driver of profitability. And you look at those gross margins, they are typically a lot better than sourcing product through those name brands we often talk about, and we certainly did on the Food Focus podcast as well. It really helps in terms of logistics to use their economies of scale, their current store network to their advantage. They know what to source. They know how to source it. And because of that, they're able to get a few basis points more than competing brands. And to this end, it seems like their new leadership has done a pretty good job of, of doing just that. Their CEO, Vivek Sankaran, took over just about nine months ago. So you're seeing the progress on that front. Digital and e-commerce, Trent, I'll touch on this really quickly before I hand it back off to you. Digital and e-commerce sales grew 33% for them too. A major part of this is simply just the build out of the actual platform, having something in place that's reliable enough for revenue generation. So they have delivery capability through Instacart, and they've also been working hard to expand curbside pickup, which we know Walmart has been doing the same thing, building out thousands of stores within their network. Only 300 of their current 2,268 stores offer drive up and go, which they hope to increase by the end of the fiscal year to around 600. So that's a, a doubling for those who are wondering about that math there. But still, this is a relative drop in the bucket compared to Walmart's curbside build out and of course, Kroger's clickless penetration, which they pretty much have it in every single store in their Midwest market. 
And they're also testing out Albertsons, that is, not Kroger, but a subscription program at around 12 stores, some in SoCal, some in Arizona, where customers are billed monthly or annually for these digital services. Still testing that out. Not a lot of guidance on this particular release, though, about it. And they downplayed this somewhat in the release or this aspect of the release, but higher fuel margins were also to credit for that profitability that Leighton mentioned within the quarter. So there were higher fuel margins there. They don't have a ton of fuel centers, right around 400, I believe, throughout the United States, but still able to profit on that. Now, as we mentioned, the company's been able to alleviate that debt somewhat, not only through their profitability, but also through some real estate initiatives. Leighton touched on these just slightly earlier. I wanted to go in-depth because I thought it was very interesting how in-depth they went in this press release as they were talking about paying down this debt. And it's not only, like I said, through their profitability that they're working to pay down the debt, but it's been a big topic for Albertsons, a major reason why they've been rumored to want to issue an IPO so they can erode some of that debt. And of course, their debt position wasn't at all helped by the debt-fueled buyout of Safeway and some of their other purchases of smaller chains. However, according to Bob Diamond, who's Albertsons CFO, They've been able to pay down their debt by a whopping $1 billion since the beginning of the fiscal year. Their net debt leverage was reduced to 3.3 times as a result. Now, they'd still like to cut into this somewhat, getting it back into the two range. But a good amount of this payback stems from their work to engineer sale leaseback agreements with several of their properties. And this is where they got specific. A lot of times... We hear on earnings calls or other press releases, hey, we've got a sale leaseback thing for an undisclosed number of properties for an undisclosed amount. Not the case here with Albertsons as they've sold off 50 store properties and a distribution center for $886 million as a result of two separate deals reached to lease back those properties. As we always talk about with sale leaseback deals, you know they can help in the short term because they're going to give you capital in the short term. You can pay down that debt. You can reduce those interest payments. So it's going to help out a little bit in the short term. And maybe reducing those interest payments is going to help out a little bit in the medium to long term as well. However, sometimes they can tax a company going forward as the lease agreements are often for a very long term and are airtight. In the case of Albertsons, they said the lease agreements were for 15 to 20 years each, depending on location with initial annual rent payments of around $50 million per year in aggregate. So you're looking about $1 million, give or take, per store property and for the distribution center there. And then you have lease bumps or increases every year of about 1.5 to 1.75%. So in case you're wondering, these terms are very much in line with other national credit tenants. So Albertsons didn't have to do this at a discount Seems to be a fair deal for everyone involved, not only the new real estate holders, but also Albertsons. Our back of the napkin math shows around a 6% cap rate for the properties, which of course should rise slightly as the leases mature, but ultimately that's right in line with what you're seeing. National credit tenants, very much like Albertsons, inking or selling off their properties for. So again, this isn't taking place at a discount. Seems to be a good deal for all parties involved at 6%, kind of that sweet spot there. And we've seen agreements like this work well in the past, but we've also seen them backfire. JCPenney, for example, 
just a couple of years ago, they were able to pay back some debt by doing some sale leasebacks. But now they have the burden of those lease expenses on their ledger and they've struggled to find that profitability. So help them out a little bit in the short term, but now it's kind of a burden on their ledger because they still haven't found that profitability. In Albertson's case, though, they might find benefit in lowering those interest payments, putting themselves in a better financial position because remember, They've talked about an IPO for a long time. The better their debt position is, the better they're going to look for that potential IPO. And also, speaking of lowering those interest payments, interest expense was down nearly $30 million for them in the quarter. Now, it still totaled $225.2 million for them in the quarter, but it was down more than 10% in just this quarter alone, which speaks to how effective that sale leaseback deal was in terms of helping them out a little bit in the short term. And if you figure, if you can save on interest expense by about that $50 million per year, well, that's going to more than make up for those rent payments that you're going to be giving your new landlords. And again, different situation for Albertsons than it was for JCPenney when you're talking about these sale leaseback dynamics, because JCPenney, they've struggled to maintain a profit. And Albertsons right now, it looks like they're headed in the right direction profitability-wise, and they're actually going in a rare direction for grocery in general, whether you're talking about Amazon's e-commerce grocery initiatives, whether you're talking about Kroger, whether you're talking about Walmart, Albertsons is that rare company where you're actually seeing that margin grow out. And to kind of put a bow on all of this here, Diamond said that an IPO might come when the timing is right and everything else lines up for us. That's a quote. Now, they are 0 for 2 in IPO attempts since 2016, but I think a lot of what we learned this week certainly plays favorably into a possible IPO here over the next couple of years. When I think about the company going forward, so we're thinking mid to long term here with Albertsons, you're thinking of a company that still has a lot of room to grow. And I mean, not just in terms of footprint. In fact, maybe their footprint should stay the same. It should maybe remain neutral over the next few years. I'm talking about in-store innovations, the things that they've been talking about, not just private label branding and trying to push their own types of products. I'm talking about bigger extensions, bigger than just meal kit preparations. I'm speaking on behalf of the innovations that have been happening at every single other competing outlet, and we're including Kroger, Walmart, Costco in these conversations. You really have to look at a company that has a very, very solid brand equity in the regions in which they do business. However, in order to hold on to those, they have to do the same exact omni-channel initiatives as their competitors and make sure that it's reliable and that their brand extends into those innovations. So for instance, Albertsons owns several stores near where I live, Pavilions, as I had mentioned, being one of them. They don't have what we were talking about. They do not have curbside pickup. It would really behoove them to open their eyes to their competition here in Southern California where you're seeing the likes of Amazon that are delivering groceries on a daily basis to customers with just a few hours to spare in terms of clicking on a particular order and getting it to their doorstep. I think it would really behoove the executives to look at the bigger picture here, allocate those profits, and maybe 
reinvest a little bit more aggressively. We all like to see net income with a company, especially one of Albertsons, who we now can see more publicly available information. That's all well and good, but they have to stay alive for the long term. That is their fiduciary duty to not only the store management and the personnel, but of course, the people who have financial stakes within the company. And it's my opinion that they have the wherewithal to do so, but they need a better sense of urgency to move forward and they need to be able to have risks and provide risks with really looking at the downside of maybe not being as liquid, maybe taking a few quarters where you're having to write down some costs due to acquisitions or some investment on the technological side of the house. I believe it would do the business justice if they did those types of things. We move on to our second story for this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. One of our favorite retailers, yet not a typically top of mind one, Sherwin-Williams posted an earnings beat this Tuesday. And you see a lot of Sherwin-Williams business comes from contractors or the wholesale segment. So what we'll focus on is their retail presence, which continues to actually grow. Their presence has expanded over the last few years, and they've certainly been the benefactor of the economy as a whole with increased revenues in the home improvement, home building industry in a larger sense. So we talk about Home Depot on this podcast. We talk about Lowe's, of course, Ace Hardware, True Value. All of those retailers have been seeing very, very strong same-store sales. So one would think Sherwin-Williams would be right along with them on the retail front. And there's been some concern over new home construction over the past few months. But despite this, revenues from the likes of Home Depot, True Value, and all of the others I was mentioning have been increasing along with those same-store sales. So you're saying that overall business is strong. So it really means well for a company such as Sherwin-Williams, who is, by the way, more of a bellwether in this industry. Yeah, they're a bellwether for multiple reasons, not the least of which is the fact that they have so many agreements with other retailers, Lowe's being among them. We mentioned uh, True Value, of course, but Menards as well. Up until recently, they had a very strong partnership with Ace. So that's another reason they're kind of a bellwether is we can see their wholesale sales. If those go up, we can reason that, hey, paint's selling well in those other retailers too, which probably means a lot of people are doing that home improvement. Leighton, you mentioned the home sales. That actually came up on the call, new home builds. They said, hey, these latest numbers aren't that good, but they feel pretty confident for reasons we'll talk about later on as far as the forward direction of the company. Now, those increases continued in the second quarter for Sherwin-Williams. We begin with same-store sales. Sales at stores open at least a year, saw a 5.3% increase across North America. Solid comps there, definitely outpacing inflation. And as far as their business taken as a whole, their diluted net income per share also saw a jump from $4.25 to $5.03 when adjusted for acquisition-related costs and a tax credit investment loss. Those earnings hopped up to $6.57 per share. And of course, this is still a business that's trying to wrap its head around that Valspar acquisition a little bit. They also saw a sales increase of 2.2% across all business units. So you're looking at same-store sales increasing, all business units increasing a little bit. They saw a little bit of softness in performance coatings, but as I mentioned, we're going to be talking and focusing mostly on their retail presence. Now, as far as those increased sales in North American stores, it was a result of multiple factors. The company credited, first and foremost, higher paint sales volume. And you might be thinking, well, of course, if 
store sales are up, it probably means paint sales volume is up, but they do break it down a little bit because you're looking at some of those ancillary items there like brushes and painters tape. They didn't note increased volume in those categories, but paint, they did see a substantial volume jump. Additionally, they gave much credit to a customer program that they launched last year for generating repeat customers and larger ticket sizes. Finally, they credited an increase in selling prices as part of the gain. They've been trying to build out margins by increasing prices as stores, and increasing prices has not driven customers away in the slightest. Customers have been more than willing to pay those increased prices at Sherwin-Williams. Now, for the retail group specifically, they saw profit increase by a whopping 7.5%, up to $612.4 million dollars for the second quarter. Now, I just want to put this in perspective for you. As a reference, this profit for Sherwin-Williams makes up about 90% of their overall profit company-wide. So even though their retail division doesn't make up 90% of their revenue, profit-wise, it's kind of the reverse of Amazon, if you will. Profit-wise, they see more from their retail division than any other division. Margins are, of course, much slimmer on wholesale and performance coatings as well. Net profit as a percentage of sales for the Americas Group, as their North American retail division is called, clocked in at a jaw-dropping 22.2% for the quarter, meaning that of all the revenue that those stores brought in, 22.2% was basically profit there, which is amazing. Now, part of this, I should mention, is because they factor in administrative costs in kind of a fourth business division there. So, if you were to kind of work those out on a pro rata basis, that margin might look a little bit lower, but still substantial margins there for Sherwin-Williams and beyond what most retailers are going to see. And that's not all. They expect this gap, these margins, to grow even further going forward. Their CEO, John Marikas, said that they expect continued volume growth, but more than that, Lower projected raw material pricing in the back half of the year versus what they saw in 2018. Basically, that means it's going to take less money to make the paint and they'll be able to sell it at the same price. They feel like those raw material inputs will be actually slightly deflationary in the final two quarters of the year. So things are going really well for Sherwin-Williams. Layton, what initiatives did they discuss on the call? I guess that's probably the most important part of this story is what they're talking about for changes in the near future. Store openings continue to be a theme for them. However, they are slowing somewhat. They've opened five net new stores in the second quarter, 20 overall in 2019, Trent. This compares to their 18 new store openings in the second quarter last year. However, we should keep in mind that they have around 4,716 stores in the United States and Canada combined. A solid number, considering they just broke over 4,000 stores in the calendar year of 2015. So that's 716 stores in just about four years, give or take. And so still looking at opening 80 to 100 stores this year, it's a pretty solid number. Though they said they might be a little bit below that when it's all said and done. So, of course, you have to look at the planning and the logistics of opening stores. And, of course, real estate, the cost of construction is more and more and more. So you have to look a little bit more strategically if you are Sherwin-Williams, especially with that deep penetration already, like we said, in the United States and Canada. There are two, by the way, Sherwin-Williams stores within a mile of each other where Trent has actually moved, and they are almost as common as McDonald's in Colorado. I think this is 
really the case for a lot of parts in the Midwest where one particular paint retailer may dominate a certain market versus another. Over on the West Coast, where I now live, it's a little bit more competitive. You have a lot of different brands to choose from, and therefore, it's also more price competitive. So it's a little bit different of a dynamic depending on where you live. As far as breaking down their positive sales into categories, Trent, they said that basically all regions in the Americas were up. Really good news for the company. Leading the way was residential repaint as far as reasons for the initial purchase. Purchases falling into this category grew high single digits over the last year. This is a continued good sign for the home improvement industry overall as it shows that people are still using their disposable income on making renovations or fixing up their current homes. Alternatively, repainting a house just purchased. They expect demand for this to continue to be stable in the last two quarters of 2019. Funny quick story here, anecdotally, I work with several people who are actually doing home renovations. They're doing a lot of different projects to their home, which, by the way, involve paint. Sort of a side note there, but a lot of people were using their tax returns and the bonuses they got, yearly bonuses, over the last couple of years through the economic green periods, if you will, to actually put that money, funnel that money back into home projects that they may have put off for five or ten years or so. On the commercial painting level, leadership feels that they have a backlog of customers for painters in the second half of the year. The term they used on the call was dead sprint. As weather conditions lift and painters get around to projects that they had previously delayed. And you see this, of course, is beneficial for Sherwin-Williams, but it shines a light on what we might be seeing in the construction segment as a whole and potentially more good news for the likes of Home Depot, Lowe's, and Menards. And this is what Sherwin-Williams really has to partner with in the recent past with their recent agreements. Speaking of those retailers, they also talked about partnerships with Lowe's, which is interesting, on the call saying they basically had additional initiatives ready to assist Lowe's in catching up with Home Depot on market share, but would not give those specific details, trying to keep those close to their chest. And even their partnership with Lowe's really hit full gear after Sherwin-Williams' acquisition of Valspar. Leadership on the call was pretty clear that they're realizing some synergies from that acquisition, but they're still trying to work a few things out on the wholesale front. Additionally, Sherwin-Williams on the call noted that Ace has made a decision to shift towards Benjamin Moore instead of Sherwin-Williams or Valspar, as the case was, as Ace once carried a significant amount of Valspar. However, Ace will still carry a number of Sherwin-Williams brands, so the partnership isn't dead. They just won't carry as much paint, so a lot of deck stain, a lot of coatings, that type of thing. Now, this appeared to be a result of negotiations just really never panning out between Sherwin-Williams and Ace. And the Sherwin-Williams leadership said, hey, we bought Valspar knowing that some of these things might not pan out, but they were optimistic that they would in the case of Ace didn't really happen. All that said, though, they were pretty clear. They don't feel like the loss of business from Ace will have a huge impact on the bottom line since their margins with the partnership or wholesale portion of their business are significantly behind their retail margins. Now, perhaps the most interesting to us was their discussion of real estate on the call. Of course, longtime listeners know we love to look at real estate when it comes to retail, and Sherwin-Williams is no different. 
After a question from Steve Byrne of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Marikas noted that traditionally they've looked for around 5,000 square feet for their retail stores in North America. His exact quote on the call was, we tried to put those everywhere with meaning those 5,000 square feet stores. And even now you look across America, whether it's the Midwest, whether it's the East Coast, whether it's the West Coast, a lot of those four to 6,000 square foot stores existing for Sherwin-Williams. But now they're seeking a little bit of flexibility surrounding footprint based on the market and the fit as they look to go smaller in some spots and larger in others. And what this is really about is figuring out the end customer for each of their locations, because you might have a location that services mostly larger painting firms, you're working on larger products, you've got a deal in larger volumes there, and you might have another location where you're selling to homeowners, and homeowners might be buying just a gallon or two at a time, so they're not buying a massive amount of paint. It's really looking at commercial customer versus the homeowner. And depending on the customer and depending on anticipated volume per project, they are flexible with a little bit of a different footprint. So that's their key. They also said store density within a market is very flexible. I Leighton mentioned the fact that there's a couple of stores near me within a mile from one another. You know, their CEO talked about the fact that they haven't reached a saturation point yet in most markets. They want to continue growing in terms of their brick and mortar outlets. He cited Atlanta and Cleveland as two markets where really they have larger than average number of stores per capita, but they could still use more locations there. They want to continue to add stores anywhere they can going forward, including small to mid-sized markets. You know, Leighton, they're one of the few retailers that have a footprint just about everywhere in the United States, whether it's a small market, mid-sized market, large market, they've got footprints everywhere. And so for them, it's mostly literally about covering the earth when you're talking about Sherwin-Williams. That's kind of been their longtime motto, but they feel like there's certainly runway for more stores and for more brick and mortar growth. Now, other things that were mentioned on the call, and I should mention, they leadership was very good in taking all the questions they did on the call. There were probably more questions on this earnings call than any call that I've been in on the last six or seven months. They were asked a lot about CapEx, where they were going to be spending all of this profit that they're bringing in. They said, hey, you know, we're going to set it aside. Part of what they're setting it aside for, mergers and acquisitions. They said they're very active in that space. And while they couldn't give details, of course, they said that, hey, if a deal doesn't pan out, we've got other places we can be spending the money and developing the money. It's a good position to be in from their perspective. They feel like they're in a good debt position as well with their debt ratio fairly low. Mortgage rates also something that were mentioned on the call with mortgage rates falling. Uh, their leadership said, hey, mortgage rates have fallen by around a point in the last year. That's a good thing because you have more people buying houses that they're, of course, looking to put their own touch on with paint. And he said, on top of that, with mortgage rates falling, it's pretty much a perfect storm because you've had 20% growth in paintable square footage since the last housing peak happened just prior to the Great Recession. So you're looking at that saying 20% growth, and yet you might have a lot more first-time buyers on the market because of these mortgage rate drops. He says even though some of those housing numbers aren't that great, their company is still very bullish on the potential going forward, in part because of that growth in paintable square footage. And that's not something, Leighton, you and I talk about a lot. A lot of people, a lot of economists We'll just look at you know the housing numbers. Are they going up? Are they going down? Are new builds going up or down? 
But Sherwin-Williams really cares about how many walls there are to paint. And so in this case, you're looking at, again, 20% growth in paintable square footage. That's a massive jump. And if you have people, whether they're putting off the projects until now, whether they're buying new homes here in the near future, this is going to be a big dynamic for Sherwin-Williams and a big opportunity to capture a lot of market share, whether they're doing it in the retail stores, which they seem to be doing a lot of, by the way, or they're doing it through their wholesale agreements. Well, it's that time in the show where I mentioned stem cells, my stem cell therapy that I recently received in Medellin, Colombia, called BioAccelerator. BioAccelerator is a company that I came across after listening to several different podcasts in a variety of different areas, sports, entertainment. And you would hear of stories where athletes went down to Medellin, Colombia, and received treatment from BioAccelerator using live stem cells, and they would treat areas affected either through sports injury or chronic illness. BioAccelerator is the global leader in stem cell therapy, and they offer state-of-the-art medical facilities with the ability to treat patients with tens of millions of active adult stem cells to help them recover from injury and major medical complications. BioAccelerator currently offers treatments for a variety of conditions ranging from orthopedic injury, spine and disc injury, chronic pain, and even severe autoimmune disease. Trent, I myself had received treatment in my knee and ankle, and I am starting to feel great. I had promised the listeners I would give an update. I gave a little bit of an update last week, but I will say I am feeling significantly better. In fact, my ankle is pretty much healed Uh, As far as I can tell, I have full mobility now when I play tennis or when I go on a run, which I just came from, by the way. I feel really, really good. So for those that are curious, Trent, tell them where to go to find out about these treatments. Yeah, so if you or someone you know suffers from a life of pain or complications due to a major medical condition, join the likes of UFC Hall of Famer Matt Hughes, Chael Sonnen, Chuck Liddell, and Leighton, and contact BioAccelerator. Start your path to wellness and become a BioX man or a BioX woman today and tell them Leighton sent you. That address you're going to want to go to, it'll be stemcells.bioaccelerator.com slash retail podcast. That's B-I-O-X-C-E-L-L-E-R-A-T-O-R slash retail podcast. So once again, stemcells.bioaccelerator.com slash retail podcast. And if you do that, you can see a gorgeous picture of Leighton right there on that front page. When Williams is a retailer, we consider ourselves bullish on to one we're definitely bearish on. GNC released a mixed earnings call on Monday. Now, I previewed the call in last week's Looking Ahead, calling into question the company's e-commerce initiatives and really wondering whether they've lost track of their ideal customer in the health and supplements market. They beat on earnings significantly, though, on the call, which is good. However, there were a number of other things discussed on the call. That resulted in the stock actually declining in the days after the call. The headlines, which you may have seen, trumpeted their stated desire on the call to close a large number of locations over the next several years. The next several years part, of course, was glossed over by some media outlets. It looked as though they were going to close all the locations overnight. Look, the closings aren't happening immediately, which is a good thing. We'll get to that in a bit. First, I want to get to the call results. As mentioned, they beat on adjusted earnings per share coming in at 13 cents with Zach's consensus estimates coming in at 7 cents prior to the call. So a significant beat, not a small beat at all. This was driven by an increased focus towards margins, even with declining sales. However, there were some adjustments necessary after the transfer of their Nutra and China business 
as a result of the Harbin partnership they announced last year. Speaking of those margins, by the way, they attributed the boost to lower occupancy costs, lower salaries, and a reduction in benefits. So while it's good for the company and good for Wall Street, not exactly what employees of the company want to be hearing. A lot of the reductions stem from a lower number of employees overall as they continue to shed stores, cut bonuses here and there as well. Now, as far as revenue is concerned, it was down. However, again, the numbers muddied somewhat by the impacts of the Nutra and China transfer. One thing they were clear about, however, same-store sales were down 4.6%, including e-commerce. So when you have a climate like that, if you're going to increase margins, of course, one way GNC has looked to do that is by cutting down the number of employees in their chain, cutting down benefits, making some full-time employees part-time. So definitely not a good thing for the employees, even if the company is sitting in a pretty good position from a profit standpoint. And lest you think that e-commerce for them offset brick-and-mortar sales drops, this wasn't the case. In fact, we alluded to this last week on the show. Their e-commerce just hasn't been stellar, but it had at least been growing. That stopped this quarter. Their percentage of revenue from e-commerce fell from 8.3% last year to 8.1% this year meaning their e-commerce sales also fell from last quarter. You do the back of the napkin math, looks like those sales fell 5% from last year's quarter. In all honesty, they might be the first retailer we've seen to have declining e-commerce sales in a quarter that at least we can recall not a good sign, but they gave reasons for it on the call, which we'll get to here in a second. Late and finally, in terms of the numbers, Domestic franchise locations actually saw less of a drop in same-store sales, down just 1.8% versus last year's second quarter, something we see a lot in the QSR industry and the restaurant industry. A lot of times, franchise locations will have more success than the corporate-owned locations simply because those franchisees can look at it under a microscope a little bit. They're much more hands-on or feet-on-the-ground or however you want to put it than some of the corporate stores are. And it seems like those franchise stores having just a little bit more success for GNC. But I wanted to turn it over to you for some of the details on the call. If you're looking at the company or have been interested in the company as a potential investment, you're looking at a company that had a quarter that could have been worse, but wasn't really that good. And the first thing that we wanted to address here from the call was those falling e-commerce sales. But their leadership says... There were some actually good and or valid reasons for this. First, last year's second quarters featured actually some e-commerce promotional activity that GNC decided not to repeat this year because it ate away at margins. And they talk about margins a lot historically, and they did on this call as well. As a result, e-commerce sales fell actually early in the quarter in particular, they noted, but they were able to glean larger margins, which was evident in the bottom line. So that is potentially a win if you're looking at the company's overall strategy. They called this a one-time issue. However, there's the entirely separate issue with Amazon sales that we referenced on last week's podcast, in essence, prime fulfillment eroded margins to where some items were almost negative margin for the company. And there were a number of their products that began to show up on the and I quote, gray market, pushing customers to other sellers. CEO Ken Martindale 
said on the call that their associates have spent the past six months working closely with Amazon to ease wrinkles in the program, and they believe that they're beginning to see some momentum out there. And still, it is worrisome that they have had to trim down on their product assortment on Amazon and worry that this may open the door for more gray market or third-party sellers of GNC products on Amazon in the future. As a whole, they felt it was necessary to take steps back to get their e-commerce presence where it needed to be going forward. Again, a question. Why didn't the leadership foresee these issues in the first place and do it all correctly the first time? They were planning this for a while and noted the different dynamic that they were going into, the very highly competitive dynamic that is the Amazon marketplace. While they might be headed to a better place now, why did it take them three years to figure this out? You know, essentially steering into a ditch margin-wise. You see another item that got mentioned and throughout a lot of media outlets, by the way, after the call was GNC's effort to potentially close a number of their stores nationwide. And this certainly hit our news feed. We actually retweeted a couple of articles about this on our Twitter at Retail Podcast. They noted on the call that they now believe their store optimization program will see them close up to 900 stores in the coming years. That particular headline is something that we had tweeted because, of course, that's going to grab attention. Once again, the closures won't come all at once, but will take place as the leases come to an end. So this is more strategic from a financial perspective. This is what we really like to see. A lot of retail leases are ironclad and difficult to get out of because they require lump sum payments for the entire lease liability, that is, if you haven't filed for bankruptcy. However, GNC saw that this might be a possibility and has been signing more short-term leases, one to five years, for instance, just in case some stores would need to be closed. This is a rare case of a company looking ahead, and we really do applaud them for it. This is a, a bright spot for us, at least. As such, select stores in the optimization program will be closed as the leases run out. Another note in the call, I should add, that got a lot of headlines was the idea that GNC is looking to decrease their mall exposure, potentially cutting the number of stores in traditional indoor malls in half. Although we think of GNC as a mall-based retailer historically, they now have far more locations in strip centers or smaller shopping complexes that are regional rather than those indoor malls. In fact, they have only around 800 locations in malls currently, and just over 3,000 total company-owned stores in the United States. So if you do the math, Trent, it's really not a lot left in those conventional indoor malls. By the way, another 1,000 franchise stores with 2,000 Rite Aid stores within a store. So that concept, while it may be subpar, really takes away from the total number of stores that exist in those indoor malls. However, they'd like to take their mall exposure down to around 400 to 500. So having that yet again, you look at 400 to 500 locations, that is a pretty small number, potentially removing themselves from some B- minus or C-class properties that have been going down in terms of value over the past few years. On the call, Bob Summers from Buskingham asked a series of rambling questions about the mall closures trend. Specifically, he said that his numbers suggested a mall comp decline in the area of 11 to 13%. They rebuffed this number, saying that it was closer to the typical comp declines for the company, mid to high single digits. They also reiterated to him that the mall stores are still EBITDA positive, and in fact, the mall stores still have higher volume 
than strip center stores overall. So we're looking at a generality there. However, their lease terms tend to be a bit shorter than strip centers. As a result, it makes more sense to exit some of those mall stores, especially if leases and the cost to operate the stores individually are more expensive than those strip center ones. Finally, Trent, they mentioned a number of product initiatives on the call that really opened our eyes. Yeah, first was their Beyond Raw category, which they'd like to build out as they see momentum there. As far as successful product categories, they include performance supplements, of course. One interesting thing, though, was health and beauty. They saw a little bit of momentum in health and beauty, and because of that, they'd like to build out their HBA selection as they attempt to attract a different type of customer, namely the female type of customer, which has been an uphill battle for GNC. And it should continue to be an uphill battle. You know, something we don't talk about a lot on the show is the growth of companies like Arbon, for example, that function on Avon-esque business models. And they've picked up significant momentum in the female HBA or supplement space. If you look at those that are in the female exercise community, Arbon is a big name. For many in that community in GNC, they've got to find a way to compete. And it's difficult because our bond, part of the reason our bond sells so well, I, I, you know, I'm sure people would talk certainly about the quality of their products. I can't really vouch for that necessarily personally, but it means a lot when you have someone that uses the product that's the one selling it to you. And I think that's where our bond has the benefit in the business model, whereas in GNC, You've got some super buff bodybuilder trying to sell you some sort of Arbon type product in the store. That's difficult. So, you know, it's tough for GNC to do this without refreshing the entire way they think about the stores. And it maybe hurts their customer base in terms of who is shopping at the stores now, but you might be able to build an entirely new customer base if you can find a different way to approach things. One other initiative that they mentioned on the call, and I've actually seen firsthand, is their pilot program to place their products in Dick's Sporting Goods stores. Now, typically what's happening is these products are on a four-way or another island somewhere in the store, and they have a series of GNC supplements, of powders, and the like, on this particular four-way. Now, the Dick Sporting Goods store that I saw it in, and keep in mind, it's limited, so it's not in Dick stores throughout the country as yet. They're kind of testing to see what works and what doesn't in this phase. But the four-way that I saw was in the lacrosse section of Dick Sporting Goods rather than the weightlifting section of Dick Sporting Goods. And given the product mix that was on that particular display, saw a lot of protein powders, saw a lot of the supplements that you're used to seeing from a GNC, that's not really good cross-marketing in that case. And I think that's probably what GNC is trying to get a hold on is if they do this program, if they go forward with Dick's, how can they best merchandise their products to maximize their sales through the third party? Ultimately, though, Leighton, I see that as kind of the future of GNC. I don't know that long term the stores themselves can be viable in the numbers that they have to this point, because as you talked about, they have thousands and thousands of stores. I don't know that they can drive enough traffic and drive enough margins to even have it make sense to have one person manning the store at any given time, which is typically what a GNC store will have is just one person at any given time manning the store. I just can't see that happening. But 
I do see a market from some of their products because they do have a strong brand. People understand and recognize the GNC brand. So if you see GNC products in a different retailer, for example, Rite Aid, who they've had the partnership with for a while, or Dick's Sporting Goods, or someone else, I think there can be momentum there. So I think, honestly, the future for GNC might be more as a wholesaler than as a retailer. I think their most recent quarter in this case, it's good that margins are up. Obviously, bad news for employees there generally. But what do you think the future of GNC holds in store? What do you, where do you think their future to profitability lies? I honestly couldn't say it much better than how you just did, Trent. But you look at a retailer that still has strong brand equity, of course, just like you said. But a retailer that needs to smartly downsize their footprint in the industry. And I'm, again, just like with Albertsons, we're not talking about closing down more stores necessarily or really looking to carry less products. We're just looking to see a company know its core competencies and run with it. I I think that this company in the future, in the very near future, could actually not be on the public markets. I think it could be a private entity and do very well as such, but they need the right investments for their online channels, specifically with the Amazon channel. I believe that they still have a brand that is well-known. And I think, you know, I was shopping today, actually, for a type of product named No Explode, N-O Explode from BSN. This was a product that was a staple. BSN products were staple products inside GNC stores not that long ago, and they still carry a lot of different BSN products. But if you go on Amazon.com and type in that product label, you will find a ton of other wholesalers that are trying to take advantage of that very, very price competitive aura. You're looking at retailers that are really trying to eat away at the brand that GNC has created over time. It is up to GNC to figure out a strategy, figure out some way, somehow, to be able to be prominent on those different marketplaces. And I think that it is a huge opportunity for them. I don't understand how these smaller wholesale companies that may have only existed one to three years ago, so they have far less experience in the overall health and fitness industry, and they know a lot less about marketing products than GNC. It's just that, as we discussed over the last couple of weeks, GNC no longer really knows their core customer, or at least knows their core customer, but doesn't see it dwindling in front of them. No longer do people want to be bodybuilding types. They want to be more involved in functional fitness activities, things like yoga, natural products to put inside your body, not those types of products that may be on the WADA ban list and that you can no longer take if you're being tested in an athletic environment. So I think it's up to GNC to really expand their knowledge, look to see what's newer on the market, and be able to get that to Amazon, get that to their e-commerce channel, and make customers hyper-aware that they do have an e-commerce presence when you step foot inside their dwindling number of brick-and-mortar stores. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. All right, well, we've reached the final segment of the Retail Focus podcast where Rachel Layton and I talk about one story we're looking ahead to over the next week, month, or year. I'll go first and I'll keep mine short as Boxed.com names a new president of the company. 
Prentice Wilson comes over from Amazon. The reason I'm looking ahead to this story is Wilson mentioned in the press release that he feels like Boxed is doing something a lot of other retailers aren't, but they're honestly another two-day delivery grocery competitor here. Two-day delivery is free on purchases of over $49. No membership fee. The one thing about Boxed, though, I would mention if you go to the website, you actually have to sign up in order to access anything on the site. So it's kind of sketchy in that regard. But the reason I'm looking ahead is because this made headlines, but you have so many of these platforms you have Boxed, you have Brandless, which is a personal favorite of us on the show. You have a number of these other platforms that are trying to pop up in the grocery industry where they say, hey, there's an opening here. Can they all survive? Will they all survive? And then who survives out of it, if anybody? Because you look at where the meal kit delivery space was five years ago. I remember when we first started the podcast late and you and I were seeing all kinds of articles about how the meal delivery kit space is coming for grocery you can go back and look at those articles. Those are in archives of major news outlets. And you look now and the momentum has just been sucked out of that industry because people either realized that it was cheaper to go shopping for themselves or people looked to different options and they just got tired of it in the end. Is that going to happen with a business like Box.com? Can they maintain price competitiveness to a point where it makes sense for them to do something like rejecting an offer from Kroger for a buyout like they did earlier this year. So that's what I'm looking ahead to. Who's going to survive? Who's going to get bought out? Who's going to still be existing three years from now, just as everyone right now is starting to hop on that bandwagon regarding mail order groceries? My looking ahead story has to do with eBay, a company that a lot of people consider a competitor of Amazon, who we mentioned throughout this week's podcast. But I'll keep this short as well, Trent. I'm looking ahead at a story that was actually detailed in the Retail Dive or the RetailDive.com. They have an interesting brief on there talking about eBay's new launch of a service in 2020 called Managed Delivery. It's going to be allowing those sellers of a lot of products on eBay, so those power sellers, if you will, that have a high volume amount of merchandise being sold week to week on the eBay Marketplace platform. It's going to allow them a distribution network through third-party companies. So essentially what's going to happen, if I understand this correctly, is that eBay is going to be partnering with certain warehouses throughout the country. So it's going to be strategically placed and they're going to be therefore reaching out to sellers with those high volume orders on a day-to-day basis and basically trying to coordinate with them to fulfill merchandise. They want an end-to-end delivery system similar to the end-to-end fulfillment services currently offered by Amazon. And this is interesting because supposedly, according to eBay vice presidents, this has been a service that those high-volume eBay sellers have been wanting for quite some time. Reason being is the the merchandise that gets sold the most on the eBay platform, it takes a while to deliver. So it really is a burden for those eBay sellers unless they themselves have warehouses spread throughout the country or throughout the world in some cases. So the shipping is a little bit more expensive and it takes a little bit longer to get to your customers. So they think this is going to ease up on not only the cost of shipping and the amount of time it takes for a certain package to get to a customer. They're also looking at this trend as a branding opportunity. So they're actually going to be using boxes that have the eBay logo on them, similar to what Amazon does. 
For me, my looking ahead is how complex is this program going to be since they are partnering with third-party companies for the warehousing? And it's not necessarily going to be every single seller on eBay that has the opportunity to partake in this program. Is this going to be more of a pilot program or is this going to be something that can be extended far out into something similar to what Amazon has and how much automation can we see from eBay if this does pan out? Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. Once again, for Leighton Kling, I'm Trent Kling saying so long until next week. Thank you for listening and we'll be in touch about seven days from now. the retail focus podcast for more visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on itunes or stitcher follow us on twitter at retail podcast